Welcome to Romans Untangled, the podcast where we look at a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. Season 3, Episode 7, Did God Reject Israel? Romans 11, 1-6. Often in a mobster movie, you'll hear the crime boss say to a person who has betrayed them, you're dead to me. From that point on in the movie, they become persona non grata, which is Latin for a person who is unacceptable or unwelcome. They're shunned. They're rejected. It is if they were dead to them. Is this what God did to Israel after all of her years of rebellion, sin, and failure toward him? Hey, welcome back to Romans Untangled. Pastor Steve Treichler here from Minneapolis, Minnesota, from my basement, what I like to call my multi-dollar studio. I think this mic cost me 38 bucks. Down here with my beagle, the Wonder Beagle, Dakota. Last week was the week of Halloween, and last week we talked a little bit about this and the history of that, of All Hallows' Eve, and where that came from, and All Saints' Day. And and this season, we're beginning by talking about some faithful followers of Jesus, both the good, the bad, and the ugly of all of their their being, uh, and we're talking about them in church history. So last week, we talked about a little-known monk in the middle of Germany who turned the world upside down starting in 1517. His name was Martin Luther. This week, I want to look at, to me, one of the most fascinating people during that period of time, and it's his wife. Uh, you can say her name a lot of different ways, Katharina von Bora, uh, Catherine, or some people like he often called her Katie. Catherine von Bora was born in 1499, so she's 16 years younger than Martin Luther. At the age of five, she went to convent school in the Benedictine order, and she entered the convent in 1508, was later to take her vows of uh, becoming a nun during that time. Shortly after she enters in, the the Protestant Reformation takes place, and she becomes very interested in this. In fact, a whole group of nuns from the area become so influenced by the teachings of the Reformation, they want to escape from uh, their vows, and they want to escape from the Benedictine order. And as a result, Luther sends this city councilman and a merchant person who goes there to rescue and take all of these nuns, and they flee to Wittenberg, where Luther is in fish barrels. It's just this crazy story, right? And so here you got all these nuns now, a wagon load of them, they call that, and all of a sudden Luther, Martin Luther, starts to look for places for them to be. Would they admit them into their homes? He looks for uh, different parents, uh, relations of the refugee nuns to allow this, but most of them declined this because it was a crime under canon law to do this. So somehow Luther figures out places for these nuns to be. They either get married or he finds them a family that they can live within two years, but there's one that's left, and it's Katharina. She's left. So even though she has uh, several suitors who are interested in her and some of which she's interested in, none of those proposed matches actually worked out to 
work for a wedding. And so uh, she tells Luther's friend named Nicholas von Amstorf that she would only marry Luther or him. And Luther takes this as a kind of a, a real interesting thought. And he eventually came to the conclusion that, quote, his marriage would please his father, rile the Pope, cause the angels to laugh, and the devils to weep. <laughs> so he marries Katharina on June 13th, 1525, before a few witnesses. Um, the, the interesting thing is they, they, they weren't actually married for this strong passion they had towards one another. It was more of a marriage that was convenient. She needed a place. She needed someone to, someone to take care of her, to live, have an income. And she's 26. He's 41 at the time. The interesting thing is, though, the affection between the two of these is unbelievable. And it grows in their marriage. Now, I, I would not recommend this if you come to me for premarital counseling. If this were the way we were doing it, I'd probably say, hold on a minute. But you know, if it's in the middle of a reformation, I might make an exception. She becomes uh, Katie. I'm going to call her that because that's what, what Luther loved to call her. She is an administrator. She is someone who manage, manages all of the of Luther's uh, uh, Luther's holdings, the cattle. She even runs a brewery. We'll come back to that in just a minute uh, to help provide for the family. And they had all these students that would come through, and the visitors that would come by and would want to see Luther. In addition, she, uh, when there was a widespread illness, she would operate a a uh, ho- uh, hospital. Excuse me, on the site. Just crazy. Uh, Luther even called her the boss of Zalsdorf. And so she just was a very, very hard worker and someone who teamed up well uh, with Luther. She also eventually bore six children to Martin, uh, Hans, Elizabeth. Unfortunately, Elizabeth died at eight months. Magdalena, she died at 13. Martin Jr., Paul, and Marguerite. And she had another child that was lost to uh, miscarriage. They also raised four orphan children. Now, there's a, there's just a couple stories that I just need to let you know about. One of which is this: it's even though Luther, by and large, you can tell just kind of he lives larger than life, and he's a great theologian, but he's also just a a cheerful person, generally speaking. But he also had big time fits of depression. One time he was so depressed that his friends recommended he should go away to get some air uh, because he just was in, could find no relief. And so he, he goes away, but he comes back and he's more miserable than he's ever been. And he went into one of his sitting rooms and his wife, uh, Katie, is sitting there and she's dressed in all black. And her children are all around her, all in black. And Luther says, oh, no, who died? And she said, why, doctor, that she called him doctor. Have you not heard that God is dead? My husband, Martin Luther, would never be in such a state of mind if he had a living God to trust in. (laughs) This causes Luther to break into a hearty laugh. And he says, Kate, thou art a wise woman. I've been acting as if God were dead, and I will do so no more. Go and take off your black. <laughs> they, I, I mentioned before that they love to, uh, they love to brew beer, and uh, 
it, and both of this well documented. Both of them had a love for home brewed beer, and I'm a home brewer, so you can go back to Luther and and uh, find the roots of that. Luther, this is another quote by Martin Luther, and he said this: "Whoever drinks beer, he is quick to sleep. Whoever sleeps long does not sin. Whoever does not sin enters heaven. Thus, let us drink beer." <laughs> he was just. <laughs> <laughs> just a, a very, very uh, fun person. And their, their relationship became very tight. They really fell in love with one another. Luther dies in 1546, and she has a rough go of it uh, due to his being on the outs with the magistrates in the region. Uh, his estate cannot be given to her, even though he left a will where everything could uh, would be given to her. She doesn't get it. And she struggles. She struggles for many, many years. Uh, she she remained in Wittenberg in poverty uh, for six years, and then she flees to another city called Targau. And on while she was there, she was thrown from her cart into a watery ditch near the city gates. And free for three months, she went in and out of consciousness before she died on December twentieth, fifteen fifty two, at the age of fifty three. Her last words is, is reported to have been, I will stick to Christ as a burr to cloth. I love that. That's one of our great mothers of the faith, I think. Just tremendous person in church history. Uh, was right along in the Reformation, and, and Luther would even say, I did not make a decision without consulting and being sometimes rebuked and corrected uh, by Katie. And so that's Catherine Von Bora or Katie Luther, as she becomes known as. All right, on to Romans. Uh, first, before we read this week's text, I just want to remind you kind of uh, what we t- what took place last week. Just remember, the, the, the question we're dealing with, and, and if you're brand new to uh, Romans Untangled, we're dealing with, we're in chapters 9 to 11. This week, we're kicking off chapter 11. And uh, the, the big question is, as you look around the early church, you don't see many Jewish people. And so it's like, wait a minute, isn't this whole story about them? Where are they? And why are there so few of them in the churches, right? And you, we find a lot of things. And, and the biggest and most important verse is Romans 9, verse 6, which says, it is not as though God's word had failed. So God did not fail. That's very important. And it goes through a variety of reasons there for that. And what we've been seeing is that there's an invitation to the Jews, but they have been rejecting this invitation, right? And last week we saw this beautiful invitation, which we'll, we'll kind of wrap up uh, this week and next week, how this invitation is being given to them. Um, if you looked at, we talked about the four arguments to support the idea that God is not, uh, God is not to blame for the Jews not coming in. The first one was the first half of chapter nine, uh, God's sovereignty, God's sovereign over all things. Then we looked at human responsibility and that ended last week. This week we're going to look, this week and next week we'll look to the call to Israel to come to faith now. Come now is the first 10 verses here that there is a call for them to come. And then we'll look at verses 11 to 36 uh, for our last one of these arguments, which is the story's not over yet. So last week you looked at and talked about, you know, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? This is Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and on. In other words, this idea that the, the, the gospel has to be presented to them 
but he goes on to say then but that they had heard portions of the good news even in the Old Testament and they rejected it. They uh, did not seek after God. And in the, the last verse, which is important for this um, for this verse, or excuse me, for this section one to six is he says, but concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Okay. So God is saying, is this the open hands kind of a thing? And he's, he's waiting for them to come and they're, they're obstinate and they're running away. And if you remember last week, we looked at the, the parable of the, the two sons and the older brother is the one that represents the Israelites and that they are not returning because they think we don't need grace. We've got this on our own. That all leads us, that's all background, leads us clearly into kind of this picture at the end of chapter 10 with God with his hands extended saying, come. That now leads to chapter 11. And and here we go. Let me just read it, the first six verses, then we'll, we'll untangle it. So, Romans 11, 1 to 6, this week I'm reading from the ESV version. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israel myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Okay, first thing we always try to do on this program is just untangle this. Like, what's going on here? And the the big idea here is verse 1, the first part of verse 1. The first part of verse one says, did God reject his people? Did God look to the people of Israel and say, you're dead to me? You're you're unwelcome. Uh, You have no place here. You're unacceptable. You are no longer allowed. That's what you're dead to me. That kind of language would mean here. Did God do that with Israel? Is that why there's none? uh, There are very few, not none, but there's very few in in the churches at the time. And Paul responds by saying, by no means, uh, which is another way of, uh, we've looked at this and remember it's meganoito in the, in the Greek. And it was, as we looked at this in many other places in the book of Romans, it means, may it never be, this is, this is wrong. Or as a, the cotton patch Bible uh, translates it, hell no, like no. So you got to hear that God did not reject Israel. So that's not the answer. In fact, the answer given in the second part of verse 1 says this, I, the Apostle Paul, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, it's like someone saying to you, hey, listen, you're always late. And when you have an argument like that, all you have to do then is say, all I got to do is find one exception to that, and then it's not true that I'm always late, right? So, the the uh, that's what Paul does. He just says, God did not reject Israel. I was, I am an Israelite. I am 
uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. So he could have just ended the argument right there, right? Because that would have, if God rejects all of Israel, here's the one exception. However, that doesn't really answer the big question that I think Paul is getting at. It's like, well, we all acknowledge that there are a few Israelites, but by and large, they're not coming. So what gives? So Paul keeps going with the argument in verse 2. He says, God did not reject his people, okay? So now he's saying, as a whole, he did not reject his people. And then he gives this phrase, whom he foreknew. Now, those three words right there and the comma are probably the most uh, debated part in this <laughs> section in Romans 11, 1 to 6. Should there be a comma or not? Okay, in the original language, there was no, uh, there were no, commas or anything like that. And so it's a bit interpretive to put one in or not, or any punctuation for that matter. And so you have to kind of use the context. And that's what we're going to do. It, it, it can basically be saying two different things. And I'm going to try to untangle this the best I can here for you. So he's saying this. Uh, first of all, what does the phrase his people mean? And did, did whom he foreknew, does it... Uh, does it describe his people or does it uh, make a subset of his people? Okay. So in other words, uh, so when we get to the, when we can use it in verse one, when we see the phrase, his people, did God reject his people? Everyone agrees that, that his people there refers to the, just all Israel, Israelites, physical descendants of Abraham, right? And that's clear from the end of chapter 21. But concerning Israel, he says, and when he says this, he means the physical descendants of Israel. He doesn't mean, later we're going to talk about spiritual Israel, people who have, who were followers of, of uh, or were physical descendants of Abraham, but later became followers of Jesus, their spiritual Israel. But here he says, concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I've held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Okay, so it seems like there that God's coming towards them, but they're not coming towards him. And also the question is, does God reject his people? And Paul says, no. And then he says, I'm an Israelite. So therefore that reject him rejecting all Israel. But now he goes on to say it the other way. God did not reject his people and the ones that he foreknew. So God isn't rejecting at all. It sounds like he's, he's welcoming. He's honoring. He's, he's taking in. So it can be one of those two things. It can be all Israel are foreknown or the ones that are eventually going to come in and become what we would call the real Israel. So therefore, uh, it, it gets a little tricky because in that sense, the his people in the first verse means all physical all physical descendants of, of Abraham. In the second one, it means his spiritual people. Okay, or it can mean both of them, and both can be physical descendants, and it means that they were the foreign knowledge of God. And commentators are completely split on this. I'm just going to let the passage, the way I, I read the passage, and let that kind of decide for us. So let's, let's keep going on here. He says, don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Then he quotes from 1 Kings chapter 19. He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
Okay, that's a quote from First First uh, Kings nineteen uh, verse ten, and then the answer is in verse fourteen. All right, so you got to we got to take just a real quick, interesting look here at what's taking place, and uh, you got to go back to First Kings sixteen to see where this. So if you go back to your old Bible, if you got a Bible with you, go to First Kings. If you can get there real quick, or if you got an electronic device, just click on that thing and look at verse uh, twenty nine. It says in 1 Kings 16, verse 29, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, and remember now we have a split kingdom. We have Judah and Israel, those the, the split uh, kingdoms. And Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbalah, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Okay, so just follow that right there. What the times are is Ahab is this wicked king. In fact, he's rejected God. He's serving pagan gods, Baal in particular, and he builds an altar for him and he and, and puts a uh, temple, uh, puts the altar in the temple and his whole thing. He's just, he does all kinds of evil and he marries this woman who is not an Israelite. She's from a totally different tribe. He is just disobeying God all over the place. So what happens is to make a long story short, and it's really fascinating, I highly encourage you to read it. But if you keep reading from that point on and you see all this 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 rise of Elijah, um, who's who's this prophet of God and what God does mirac- miraculous things in Eli- Elijah's life, we finally get to the middle of chapter 18 where he is on Mount Carmel and he's with the prophets of Baal. He's by himself. And they're having this kind of spiritual gunfight at the OK Corral. And it's just, it's almost comedic what's taking place. And all the prophets of Baal are calling on their God, on Baal to come down and do this remarkable thing. And he can't do it. And Elijah is mocking them. And it's an amazing account. Uh, and they, it doesn't happen. And then it's Elijah's turn. And now Elijah calls on God to do the miraculous. And he says in verse 37 of 1 Kings 18, answer me, Lord, answer me, so those people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And it says, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And they all are amazed by this, right? And it completely, uh, it just uh, amazes everybody. And uh, the power of God is just shown by this. And then you go to chapter 19. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, they had killed all the prophets of Baal. And all of a sudden now, 
Elijah's terrified. He runs for his life. So here's this huge ministry win. Here's this thing where he completely uh, feels the power of God, and now he runs away. And that's where he says the phrase, God, God, they're going to kill me too. There's no one left. There's no one left but me. And and God, I'm done. Uh, They're going to kill me. And God's answer to him is, I've reserved for myself 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, the way you're looking at this, it looks like it looks like you think you're the only one. I've just not happened to show you the other 7,000. I have 7,000 who are not on the side of Baal, even though that's the way the government has gone. That's the way culture has gone. God lets Elijah know, hey, that's not how I work. I have called a people to myself. Don't you worry about that, Elijah. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul wants you to think about right now. It looks really bad. It doesn't look like many of the Israelites have come. And yet he says then, going back now to Romans chapter 11, verse 5, he says, so too, at the present time, right now, the Apostle Paul is saying, there is a remnant and they're chosen by grace. Now, that phrase, chosen by grace, links us back up to the whom he foreknew, right? Foreknowing someone is this chosen idea by grace, right? Beautifully. And he's saying here that there is a remnant. I get this then, that that means that verse two is actually a limiting thing. He's saying all of Israel, physical Israel, there's a subset within that are the ones that God foreknew, the ones that he chose by grace, the ones that will be the ones that do not reject him, the ones that turn towards him, okay? And then he goes on to explain that. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace, okay? So, Here's, here's kind of the upshot of this whole thing. The crazy thing about chapters 9 to 11 of the book of Romans is this concept keeps coming up over and over and over, and it's the idea of grace versus works, right? Do I do things so that I earn it? I get it. I have a badge of honor. I'm in the right club. I'm in the right ethnicity. I do the right religious activities, Or is it based on God and the finished work of Jesus Christ alone? So just like it says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, God is the initiator of this. That's the same thing that's going on here when you look at the concept of predestination, of foreknowledge or chosing. It is graceful because God is the initiator of all of it. He's the one who does all of this. Okay, so in other words, that the idea of predestination, as uncomfortable as we are with that, because for us, it's such a mystery that there is actually human responsibility and predestination. It seems like we want to go to one or the other all the time. And I admit it, I've been thinking about this for uh, uh, pushing 30 some years, and I still want to go to one or the other. And it's not, it's both, right? Completely, 100% predestination, 100% human responsibility. They're, They're both true. And so, what what is this? What what's how does this fall then together? What's the argument? Here's how the whole passage goes. I asked then, verse one: Has God rejected His people? 
by no means. And he gives basically four reasons. One, look at me. (laughs) I'm a Christian, and so therefore he didn't reject all of Israel. Secondly, uh, there are other Christians, verse five. So two, at the present time, there is a remnant. There are some, there's more than just one. There's many, and those are chosen by grace. Three, Therefore, God did not reject all of Israel. He has rescued this remnant. There's still people coming under under grace. And so Paul is actually, I know it sounds crazy here, and he's going to, in the rest of Romans 11, give this huge invitation to people of Israel saying, come, you can come. And what stops them? Well, it stops because they have a hardened heart. And that's what we're going to look at next week in verses 7 to 10 of chapter 11. The hardening of the heart. The hardening of the heart. How does that happen? What it looks like? And how do we not have it? Thanks for joining us on Romans Untangled this week. I really look forward to hanging with you next week as we continue to unpack Romans 9 through 11. Have a great week.